Good morning. I am not the master pastor. I'm not the prime minister. He is sitting right over here. He just got in from Belize last evening uh, around midnight, and he's asked me to fill in. He he's gave me a, a, a great opportunity. He said, I just want you to cover 28 chapters in the book of Acts. So I, I hope you'll take him off your Christmas card list, you know. But we've been in a series of lessons entitled uh, World Upside Down, coming from chapter 17 and about verse 6, when, when they were talking about the church and said, the church are the people who are turning the world upside down. Then when you jump over to chapter 28, they are the sect that is everywhere spoken against. So we've been in this study, beginning in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus, in verse 3, he is preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God, and then it closes in chapter 28 very abruptly, as it says that Paul is preaching about Jesus and sharing the kingdom of God. Paul was in Rome, anticipating a trial, and in just a couple of short years, at the hands of Nero, he was beheaded. But everything that takes place between chapter 1 and chapter 28 tells us about the church. And we need to know something of the book of Acts. We read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and then we come to the history of the church. This is who we are. This is what we are about. The book of Acts is the DNA. It is our DNA. If you want to know what the church looks like, if you want to know who we are to be, if you want to know what we are about to be, then you need to begin in chapter 1 of the book of Acts and trail it and follow it all the way through. The thing that I love about Acts is it's just people just like we are. You know, you get the impression sometimes if you were to walk up to a Christian in the first century and rip open their, you know, you just see an S here for super saint. No, they were peasants, they were shepherds, they were marketers, they were salesmen, they were people just like as we are. But the amazing thing happens when people are submitted to God. There's amazing thing happens when the Spirit of God fills the heart of people in any generation. And as one theologian said that the world is yet to see what is going to happen in our day, in our generation, when God raises up a people who are truly sold out for Him. I think that's true. That's true. So I want us to look this morning, and I want us to begin with a with a key question. And that question that we want to consider is that as we look through the book of Acts, we want to look about what is it that we have learned about the early church. Now, as you read the book, I find it an easy read. But it's tough to get your arms around it. I find it difficult for people to love God so much that they will sell land and houses and distribute it to the poor like they do in chapter 2 and in chapter 4. 
I can't get my arms around people like Stephen in chapter 7 who loved Jesus so much that he continues to preach while the people out there are picking up stones to stone him to death. You know, I was a preacher for many years and I learned up front that when they start picking up rocks, it's time for a dismissal prayer. (laughs) It's time to go to the house. But I I can't get my arms around people like Stephen and people like James and John and, and, and the Apostle Paul who goes to Rome and he knows that he's going to die. In fact, he meets with the elders in chapter 20, 19 and 20 of the book of uh, of Acts, and and he meets with the elders, and and they're weeping because they know they're not going to see him anymore. But he said, that's okay. Whether I live or whether I die, I am the Lord's. And so when we come to the book of Acts, the first question I want us to look at is this. What have we learned about the early church? And I want us to go really rapidly through several passages. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 on the screen. Those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now let's go to verse 47. And they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now chapter 6 and verse 7. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now let's go to chapter 9. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and were strengthened. They were living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, and they increased in numbers. Now let's go to chapter 12 and verse 24. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Now let's look at Acts chapter 16 and verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Now let's look at chapter 19 and verse 20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and it grew in power. It starts off with just a handful of people empowered by the Spirit of God. And it launches a revolution. Isn't this what Jesus says? Back in Matthew chapter 22, he says, guys, this is what I want out of you. It's pretty simple. I want you to love God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind. And he said, the second commandment is this. I want you to learn to love your neighbor just like you love yourself. And they took it to heart. They took to heart the words of Paul in Philippians 2 when he says, listen, you have the mind of Christ. And they took to heart the very idea of Jesus when he washes the disciples' feet. And he says, guys, what I have done, you learn to serve one another just like this. And so when the Spirit of God comes in Acts chapter 2, in fact, his promise back in Acts chapter 1 where where Jesus tells them that, that you remain here in the city because it's coming. The power is coming. The fulfillment of the words of the prophet. When he said, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see vision. And Jesus said, you remember what the prophet said? Guys, get ready. Because it's coming. Pentecost is nigh. And then came the spirit. And everything changed. What I want us to leave here today with is, is what the church was. The church was a movement. 
It was not a new religion. It was about a new, unique relationship. It was not about the chains of law. It was about the freedom that was in Christ. And as you read, have you, have you ever said, you know, where are you going? Oh, we're going to church. No, you don't go to church. You are the church. It comes from the Greek word ekklesia, a compound word, ek meaning out of, and kaleo meaning to call. And so the church is a called out. Paul describes it in Colossians chapter 1. Those who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have been called out of death into life, Paul says in Ephesians 2 and verse 1. Peter said we have been called from despair to hope. We have been called to get out of ourselves to serve others. And when Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he says, you know who you are? You're the hands and the feet of Jesus. You are the voice of Christ. You are the living presence of the Son of God. And so it shouldn't astound us that it grows from 3,000 and it sweeps across the ancient world all the way to Rome. And the message continues to grow. And so the church was a revolution. The church was not an address. It was not brick and mortar. It was a people. And, and whenever I, th I think about their worship, uh, we lived in Africa for a period of time, and uh, when you go to an African church, when you go out into a village, and, and, and they're having church, they're having worship, you better take a sack lunch. I mean, those folks, they know how to worship. And if you preach less than 30 minutes, you're not worthy of their time. And you better show up in a wool suit because that's just the way it is. And so you, you go back and you look at the worship of the early church. It was a reverent celebration of grace. It was a thanksgiving offered to God. The writer says that we offer up praise and thanksgiving. We are a kingdom of priests. Peter says that we are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for God's own possession that we might show forth the excellencies of him who called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so when they came together to worship, it wasn't in the hands of a few trained professionals because they didn't have any few trained professionals. It was a full participatory celebration. People come together filled by the Spirit of God. It wasn't glitzy. It wasn't gimmicky. It wasn't glamorous. It was just a communal celebration of prayer and testimony and witness of the God who had redeemed them. Several years ago when we first came back from Africa, we had a young lady who came to live with us who was a former prostitute. Her name was Kim. And... Uh, I remember the day that uh, she stepped out on the aisle on Sunday morning and said, I want to put Jesus on in baptism. I'll never forget it. I baptized a lot of people in my life, but that's the first time I was almost drowned in the process. Because I mean, like, when she came up out of that water, she grabbed me. There wasn't a dry stitch on me when I came out of there. She hugged me. She said, thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, when it came to worship, she had never been to church. She took her place between me and Sonny and, and our kids. And, and we were an all-acapella church. 
Eight or nine hundred people. We didn't have any instrumental. It was just all a cappella, singing, alto, soprano, bass, tenor, all the various parts. Just one of the largest choirs in the world, you know. And bless her heart, Kim. You know when the Lord said, make a joyful noise? That was Kim. It was a joyful noise. But she celebrated with a heart filled with grace. And one day she asked me, why are the people not praising the God who redeemed them? I don't understand it. And so when you look at the worship of the early church, it was just a bunch of folks coming together, celebrating him. And the Bible says in chapter 2 and in chapter 4 that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and preaching and breaking of bread and in prayer. The next thing I noticed about the early church is that their faith was robust. You don't see any don't handle, uh, I mean, uh, handle with care or fragile written across their history. And they were driven by volunteerism and not professionalism. There was not a seminary trained preacher or pastor among them. There was no clergy laity system. And they were not bogged down with all the bureaucracy that our churches are today. Their mission and their vision was clear. They were, it didn't come from some boardroom. It came from the throne room. It came from Jesus in Matthew 28. In Mark chapter 16 when he says, I want you to go teach all nations. And I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I want you to teach them what I've taught you. I want you to go disciple the world in the name of Jesus Christ. That was their vision. And in Acts chapter 1, Jesus goes over it again to his disciples. He said, I want you to begin here, guys, in Jerusalem. Then I want you to go to Judea. Then I want you to go to Galilee. And I want you to go to Samaria. And I want you to go all the way to Hilton Head. I want you to take the message to the world. And their witness wasn't driven by some program or by some charismatic personality. It was driven by the cross. And so to sum it all up, when I think about the early church and their worship, their commitment, their vision, their people, I say that the early church is not a bunch of soft, pablum-fed, tender-footed recruits still tied to the apron strings of motherland. They were a bold revolution. They were the people of God standing in full armor with the drawn sword of the Spirit proclaiming the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They were a heaven-sent people. They were earth shakers. They were dream makers. They were life changers. They were hope givers. They were tear dryers and they were soul savers. That's the church. That's who they were. That's our DNA. Now the second question is this. We know who they were. Now, who are we? How are we to live our faith? How are we to live out our faith in our community and in today's world? How are you and how are we going to be active participants in the ongoing story of God? Now, I want to tell you a story that will help you to understand what I'm saying here. In the early 1980s, Jerry Brown, present governor of California, in the 80s, he had lost a key campaign. 
And so he decided he was just going to take a tour and he was going to visit various parts of the world and find out what's going in the world. So he decided that he was going to go to India and he was going to go to Calcutta. I have a fondness for India. I spent three months there in 1970 when I was 24. I loved it so much that I spent 26 days in intensive care unit when I returned home. And so whenever I read that he was going to Calcutta, I realized he doesn't know what he's getting into. It is a different world. And so he contacts Mother Teresa. He's going to go see her in her home for the dying. And he's on the train. Train pulls in the train station. When you step off the train in Calcutta, it's just thousands and thousands of beggars. Many of them are blind. Many of them are suffering from quashiocor or from Erasmus, or for leprosy, or for elephantiasis, or from some disease. And, and you're just overwhelmed with the sight of the people. They just keep coming, and they're begging, and they're grabbing at you. Well, Mother Teresa wasn't even there at the train station to meet him. Now, you would think, if you're Jerry Brown, and you're from California, and you're an American, and you're a politician, you would think that somebody would have taken a forethought to roll out the red carpet. Mother Teresa's not there. So he hires a rickshaw. Now, I rode a few rickshaws in India, and I told the first assembly it's like the highway to hell. Because, I mean, these guys, little bony guys, about 120 pounds, they go weaving and dodging through traffic and around water buffaloes and people that have died in the street. And they're taking you to your appointed destination. So finally, when he gets to the address, you would think that Mother Teresa would have at least had somebody to say something to him. So he arrives there. Mother Teresa's not there. He looks around. Later that afternoon, she shows up. Now, you would think that she would come in and say, you know, I'm so sorry. I, I, I was busy. I've been out in the village, and I forgot about our... But nothing. She walks up to him, and she asks him this question. Why are you here? And then she said, Did you come to serve or did you just come to observe? That's a pretty pointed question, isn't it? Well, being a politician, he was. He said, I came to serve. She said, Follow me. She takes him down this winding hallway through the hospital corridor and through this huge room where people are dying. You can smell death. And they walk through that corridor all the way back to the back of the building to this big room. This is a laundromat. There are no rubber gloves. There is no ventilation system. There's no break room. There's just a single light bulb hanging there. And Mother Teresa takes him over this huge vat. And she reaches over and grabs this huge bundle of dirty clothes that's stained with every bodily fluid you can imagine. And dumps it in that sink and tells him to wash them. And he goes to work. 
And he watches. When he finishes, the little nun comes back, dumps another load in, and another one. All day long, he washes the filth from the garments. He said later, he said, I learned something about humanity now, and I learned something about service. Now, here's what I want to ask you. If you're a member of our church family here, or if you're visiting from wherever, I want to ask you this question. Where you are a member of your local church, are you a spectator or are you a participant? Do you go there just to observe or do you go there to serve? You see, if we're here to serve, ministry is dirty business. Washing feet and drying tears and helping people through conflict and difficult. That's tough. It's tough. And a lot of church want an affiliation with a church. They want all the benefits of membership. But they don't want to have to pay any dues. They don't want to serve. I, I can't tell you, and I know Todd has experienced the same thing in ministry. I don't know how many times I'd be reading the obituary and found out somebody had died in the community and they were a faithful member of the Alpine Church where I preached. I thought, are you kidding me? I couldn't pick those people out of a lineup. <laughs> Visiting the hospital one day with a, one of my uh, uh, associate pastors and, and the door opened up. A woman stepped on there. She was a nurse, grabbed me, hugged me, kissed me on the cheek. Jerry, so good to see you. I always enjoy your preaching and left. And my associate said, who was that? I said, I don't have a clue. But I promise you, she thought she was a faithful member. Folks, if we are members of the body of Christ, wherever you are, you better be the hands of Jesus. You better be the voice of Christ. Your heart best beat in unison with Calvary. That's what the church is to be like. That's who we are to be about. We are to be a people who serve our God. Now, as I look at our world today, and I look at where we are as a nation. What our great need is, I think, that we must experience revival. We need revival. Remember Haggai? Haggai in the Old Testament said, Lord, revive us again. All the way through the, all the, the minor prophets, Jeremiah even, and Ezekiel, all of them, is trying to revive the people of God. And the reason we need revival is because our faith tends to grow old. It becomes brittle and it dies. And when I'm talking about revival, I'm talking about revitalization of our faith and courage. I'm talking about a rebirth of lost dreams. I'm talking about a restoration of lost power. I'm talking about a recovering of lost enthusiasm. You see, revival is what takes place when we experience the presence of God. When you go in the Old Testament, you know what happens when God shows up? The sea parts. You know what happens when God shows up? The blind man sees. You know what happens when God shows up? He rolls away the stone. You want to know what happens when God shows up? People are given a new name and a new hope. 
That's what happens when Christ rose. We need today. We need revival in our churches. Our nation needs revival. And I don't know whether you're aware of it or not. I don't know where you've been or what planet you're on. But I'm here to tell you, America needs revival. But if there's going to be revival in America, it's got to first come from the church. And I think the reason our country is in the condition it's in today is because we have not been the voice of God. With the millions of believers in the United States, our nation should not be in the condition that it is in. Now, I hate to break the news to you. Washington can't save America. Do you understand that? The Republican Party isn't going to save America. The Democratic Party, I don't care what party, there's only one that can save America, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians, 2 Chronicles, let's get in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. Does America need healing? Look around, folks. Five more have died just the last few. You want to deal with with all the evil in the world, only God can conquer that. Racism continues to raise its ugly head. The only way you can deal with racism successfully is not by trying to write a new law, but by changing the hearts of humanity. The only way we can ever deal with the poverty in our nation is when hearts are changed and when believers come to share what God has given them with others who have so little. That's the only way it's going to happen. This is God's revolution. This is how we are to live. This is the voice that we need to read. And, and when I speak of, of this thing called revival, It does not come from man. It can't be computerized, organized, subsidized, advertised. It is unpredictable. It is unquenchable. It is unstoppable. And it is the inescapable presence of God. We need revival, but like I say, we need revival in our churches. And Todd and I have talked about this in the past. We have a lot of stained glass masquerades. We have a lot of churches that are giving second race uh, entertainment on Sunday morning and sermons that are about as deep as dew. People need the Word of God uncompromised. If people are going to be set free like Jesus said in John 8, 32, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Then we have got to preach it. We've got to teach it. We've got to share it in our family and we got to live it. We need revival. We need it because the fire goes out. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4 The book of Revelation was written to seven churches. And John was trying to revitalize and bring hope to these seven churches. And he says, you have left your first love. You've left your love. And I told first church this morning that I read this story 
And, and, and like I've said in the past, it, it has to be a true story because it was told by a preacher, okay? <laughs> and, and he was from Texas, so you know that, that carries a lot. Anyhow, there was this couple, and the husband hadn't been feeling good, and so he went to the doctor. They run a bunch of tests, and, and, and so the husband and the wife, they go to see the doctor, and he goes in for a final examination. The doctor sends him back out in the waiting room, said the doctor wants to visit with you. So she goes in and visits with the doctor. And the doctor said, I've not told your husband yet, but I'm going to tell you, your husband is dying. Well, she was stunned. She was shocked. And she says, Doc, he's dying. Yes, all the tests indicates he's dying. Well, there's anything I can do. And he said, you know, there is something you can do. In fact, if you will do this, you can probably extend his life at least five more years, possibly eight, and maybe even ten more years. She says, Doc, what is it I need to do? And, and the doc said, well, all you need to do is do whatever he asks you to do. You be there for his beck and call. You prepare all of his meals. You do everything he asks you to do. And, and I think you're going to extend his life. She walks out of the doctor's office. They're in a car driving home. He turns to her and said, what did the doctor say? She said, the doctor said, you're going to die. <laughs> you know, obviously the honeymoon was over. And I think that sometimes that's what happens in our churches. We, we fall in love with the local church and we join it. And over time, we just, we just kind of drift away. We just kind of lose our first love. The Lord says, Awake thou that sleepest, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. When revival comes, there's a renewed passion for prayer. There is a renewed desire to worship God. There's a new devotion for the word of God. There is a brokenness over our own sin and the sins of the world. There's a deep hunger and longing and thirst for things righteous and things that are sacred. There's an increased burden for people who don't have a Savior. When will it come? It will come when the church of, of God prays for it and when God sends it. I spoke at, a, at the seminary graduation some years ago of about 50 uh, young men and women who were going out to serve. And in my concluding remarks, I read a statement about discipleship. I wish I could tell you I wrote this, but I can't. I want you to listen. And when we finish, we're going to have our prayer, okay? I am a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast, I've stepped over the line, and the decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so I'm not going to look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, and my future is secure. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right or first or tops or recognized or praised or regarded or even rewarded because I am a disciple of the Lord and I live by faith. 
I love by patience. I live by prayer. And I labor by the power of the Spirit. My pace is set. My goal, my gate is fast. My goal is heaven. And my road is narrow. My way is rough, my companions few, and my guide reliable, and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, I cannot be compromised, I cannot be deterred or lured away or turned back or deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, nor will I hesitate in the presence of adversity. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy. I will not ponder at the pool of popularity. And I will not meander in the maze of mediocrity, for I am a disciple of Christ, and I will not give up, back up, let up, or shut up until I have prayed up, preached up, soared up, and stayed up for the cause of Jesus. I am a disciple of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and so I must go until he returns, and I must give until I drop, and I must preach until all know, and I must work until he comes. And when he comes, when he comes to gather up those that are his, he will have no trouble recognizing me because my colors are flying high and they're clear for all to see. That's what discipleship looks like. That's what revival looks like. Now what I want us to do is I'm going to lead a prayer. And the prayer that I'm going to pray is the prayer that Jesus prayed for our community church here on this island and for your church where, where you're from. In fact, this is the Lord's Prayer. And here's what he says. Will you bow your head? You know, Father, the hour has come for me. Please glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Because you've accredited him authority over all people and over all the nations. Now, this is eternal life that you know. And Lord, I want the people of the Hilton Head Island Community Church to never forget. I want them to be glorified in your presence, Lord, just as you glorify me. My prayer, Father, is not just for the community church at Hilton Head. You see, Father, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. For I have given the Hilton Head Island Community Church the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And all the church says amen.